I'm so grateful that it blesses other people because it's, I wrote the book with the idea that this is the book I wish I had. This is the book that when I was first, which was first diagnosed and I was grasping, I remember going to the library at the hospital and there was nothing. I remember, you know, asking like, I'm a great student. I was a great student in college. What's the first thing you do when you don't know how to do something, right? You try to find a book that shows you how to do it. And there was nothing like what I was looking for. And so I, I really wrote it with the idea that if this is what I want. And I, it was really my editor's idea to come up with the workbook pages. And when she said that, I said to her, I don't know how to do that. And she said, I think it'll have more value if you create workbook pages. And I remember being very, that seemed so daunting to me. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. Uh, and now I'm so glad she suggested that because I think it really helps bridge the gap between reading somebody else's story and actually feeling empowered to create a different experience for your child. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. I had the pleasure of speaking with Tara Garrity, who's the author of Making Cancer Fun. Honestly, we talked for hours, and it was a challenge to edit this episode because we talked about so much stuff. We spoke about everything from her six-year life crisis to her daughter's diagnosis with neuroblastoma. We took a deep dive into all the ins and outs of how she chose to deal with treatment, which eventually led to writing the book Making Cancer Fun. Later in the episode, we explored the topics of growth mindset and gratitude while in the state of chaos. She spoke about how she coupled her theater background with play therapy to help both her and her daughter get through it all. Tara offers listeners advice she wished someone had told her in the beginning and why self-care was vital to her sanity. Full disclosure, this episode is a long one. So listen to it in intervals or go on a long walk or put on some comfy clothes and grab a cup of tea. Either way, get cozy because this interview with Tara is golden. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the All Mama Care. I have a very special guest with me tonight. I have Tara Garrity. Hello, Tara. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Jackie. (laughs) So before we begin, I would like to give a quick intro um, about Tara, and then I'll turn the mic over to her. Um, For those that have not heard of her, she is a woman of many talents. She is a full-time mom, full-time independent sales director with Mary Kay Cosmetics, author of numerous books, and best known for her book, Making Cancer Fun, A Parent's Guide. She's spoken on multiple stages, both at conventions and she is a TED Talk speaker. For almost 20 years, Tara has taught thousands of women throughout weekly live workshops, training calls, and now webinars. She has become an advocate for domestic violence victims and a voice for legal reform for victims. She is a mentor to other parents who are thrown into the tornado world of pediatric cancer. And she continues to radiate positivity and joy wherever she goes. So we are so, so lucky, Tara, to have you. I'm going to turn the mic over to you in case I forgot to add anything. (laughs) It's so funny to hear somebody else talk about you. You're like, wow, okay, well, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, you've done a lot. You've done uh, a lot. And I have to say, I'm so excited that you're creating this because 
you know, now it's a little bit different with Facebook, but when my daughter was going through cancer, it was just very isolating. And the things that weren't, you know, where you were connected with other parents was pretty negative, you know? Um, and so I love that you're creating something that has a positive place for those of us who are in that pediatric cancer world. I'm thrilled about what you're doing and having this resource for other parents. Oh, thank you. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head. This is the reason why I started it, because as of right now, I'm the only one in Central Mass that I know that has a toddler going through chemotherapy. So in a way, I do feel isolated, although we do have many resources that we are hooked up with. Um, This is definitely my way, A, of coping with what we're going through, and B, just reaching out to other parents that you know, are unfortunately caught in this world. So I appreciate you for recognizing that. Thank you so much. It's a strange, you know, pediatric cancer is a strange world because nobody ever thinks they'll be part of it. Nobody Mm -hmm. ever thinks that it's going to be part of their life. It's something that we kind of see on the outside, you know, on, on TV maybe, or on a fundraiser. And yet one of the gifts from going through childhood cancer with my daughter was the, it just opened up the store to all of these incredible people, you being one of them that I have met and now have these relationships with and people that I otherwise never would have known. And so it's the strange dynamic where you're like, I'm really sorry that I know you and this is how I know you, but I'm so glad that I know you, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, I wish it wasn't, you know, this is not how I would like to meet people, but you do meet the most courageous overcomers, these people who go through, you know, grief or, or loss and still are so resilient. It's amazing. And it almost lifts me up even more to know that others have gone before us and others have, have made it. So that's inspiring to me. And, um, if we can just back up a, a bit, little bit, Tara, could you just give us a little bit of background about how you got thrown into the cancer world? Sure. So I I call it now my six-year life crisis, like looking back on it. (laughs) So I um, was just in the middle of going through this crazy domestic violence divorce. Um, My daughter was not quite two when we first separated and we were in court for years. And so during that, during the that process, she turned three and a half and was diagnosed uh, with stage four high-risk neuroblastoma. And my life was already kind of, you know, out of control and um, just in a, in a place of trauma and chaos already. So then to have this kind of thrown on top of it, I just remember being like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And, and I remember that distinct moment. I was driving home from the hospital and I was having this moment of, you know, I had felt so sorry for myself for that past year just really feeling like, how did my life ever end up in this place that I never saw coming? Like it just, you know, totally blindsided me. Right. Mm. And And that alone in itself is a lot. Oh, it was, it was crazy because I wasn't in a situation where, um, it was kind of like, I knew it was coming. It was a situation where there was so much psychological, um, abuse and control that I had actually really started to think that I was the problem, you know, that I was the crazy one, that I was the one. And so it, it culminated in an instant of instance of, of physical violence, which then caused, you know, everything to kind of fall out of control there and get those restraining orders and everything and why there were criminal court cases, um, but I'm in this crazy so your world. Reality right? just becomes yeah. distorted. Yeah, it did. And you know, and then I, I'm driving home from the hospital. I think I was going to get clothes or something. 
And I'm sitting in the car and I'm thinking, you know, here I was so sad about how my life had been for that year. And now facing childhood cancer, I was like, oh my gosh, God, I'll go back. I'll go back to the domestic violence. Please just don't put cancer on top of oh, this. Like, Tara. you know, oh, I, the, like the, you try to reason yes. with God, you try to reason why this is happening. And, and I for sure, you know, Tara, I for sure did the same thing when, when Ollie was diagnosed again, you kind of go into this this weird world of reasoning, I'll take, you know, take everything that was good in my life away, just yes. save my baby. Yes. And I'll tell you, I've had that even now. My daughter's a survivor. She's 13 years old. She's amazing. I mean, Yay! yeah, it's really <laughs> incredible. Um, she may, I have to give you a heads up. You may hear a dog bark because she is on her way home from cheerleading. And so she may be coming oh, in the awesome. door. And- Tonight, I got the flyers to put together for her yearbook for eighth grade and had kind of texted the family, like, we're going to do, you know, what are those ads in the back of the yearbook? They put pictures and and well wishes to her. And all of a sudden, I had this moment. This is like a couple hours ago. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I'm putting together an eighth grade graduation, you know, um, like announcement or congratulations for her. And this is a child who I was told, you know, probably was not going to survive. We'll be right back. Let me let you in on a little secret. I knew nothing about podcasting before I got started. I use anchor.fm because it's super easy. Three top reasons why I use it is because number one, it's free. I don't have to pay anything for it. Number two, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit the podcast right in the platform. And number three, Anchor will actually distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard wherever podcasts are listened to. So download the free Anchor app or go over to anchor.fm to get started and get your ideas out of your head and out into the world. So, so just to back up a little bit, cause we have a lot of people listening that may be grandparents or, you know, not directly in the cancer world themselves, but maybe, um, have a friend yeah. going through, um, different cancer treatments. So just to back up, so correct me if I'm wrong, neuroblastoma is the cancer that develops, um, in the nerve so, cells. No, is so that neuroblastomas, it's a sticky tumor. And it's, okay. so it's a little bit different. Is it always a tumor? It is. It's a tumor and it kind of sticks okay. inside to all different kinds of places. And most of the time it'll either be found if it's somewhere higher up in the body, like in the, uh, where like your, um, neck is, or like your, like you thyroid, know, up in that adrenal area. Grand. So where you could see it, they'll find it like on a, okay. maybe an infant who's a stage one. And then it's kind of just getting it out. What happens for a lot of these children though, is that it's in their abdomen. And it starts to grow and kind of, you know, stick to all these different organs. And it, what's crazy about neuroblastoma is it never gets into the bloodstream. So Emily was, was sick and we were taking her, you know, I was taking her back and forth to the doctors. Um, they were testing her blood. They were doing lab draws, but the lab work was fine. You know, it wasn't something oh, that you could do that's a lab totally draw. Different. Yeah. And so that's totally different than exactly. leukemia. Wow. Yeah. So okay. totally different that you don't see anything. Oh, it makes it even it harder does. to recognize. Kind of random wow. symptoms. Um, she would get a fever and then all of a sudden the fever would be gone and there'd be no reason for the fever. Or she would get sounds really gross, <sighs> but she would get diarrhea for no apparent reason and then it would be gone. Yeah. Or she'd have stomach aches. And and during the season she had started um she had just started to have overnight visits with her dad. And I was very worried about that. I was back and forth with court. Um, so I had a restraining order at that mm. point and she didn't. And so, um, 
you know, when you go through something like that, you also then question yourself and you doubt yourself. And so I would think, well, you know, I was the mom who made all the organic baby food by hand every day on Sunday so she wouldn't get cancer. And now she's eating fast food with her dad. And that must be why her stomach's bothering her. And that's why she's getting diarrhea. And so, you know, looking back, you kind of go, oh, you know, nobody realized this is what was going on. So by the time she was actually diagnosed, we had seen, you know, a doctor, we had seen a specialist, um, the doctor multiple times. It was now, so this started in May. It was now November. So May of 2009. Yes. May of 2009. Okay. And um, so now it's November and it's two days before Thanksgiving and she was breathing funny and the specialist said she was fine and to just give her some, you know, Tums and bring her in next week. But I just was so nervous because she was going to go visit her dad um, and spend three days with him. And she hadn't been there that long. And so I brought her into the pediatrician and said, please, please, can you just look at her? I know that specialist is saying she's fine, but I'm just a wreck. And that was when he was like, okay, this is not fine. You need to get to an emergency room. So when we got there, I thought she maybe had pneumonia. She was breathing kind of you know, labored and and didn't look right. So it was like a six month lead up time between when you knew as a mom, Hey, something's wrong with Emily. And then you kept persisting, kept persisting, which again, we always talk about advocating and keep pushing, keep, you know, don't just take the doctor's word for it. Go again for your diagnosis. You had multiple months where you kept persisting and then come to in November, were you in the emergency yep. room? So we when... were in the emergency okay. room. And, and like I said, I thought it was her, her lungs were collapsing. So I thought it was maybe pneumonia. Um, and they did a CAT scan. And this is how naive I was to the cancer world. Um, they show me the CAT scan and the, the tech says, okay, do you see that, that round circle there? And to me, it looked like a big white baseball. And I'm like, yes, I see it. And I remember okay. staring at it and he goes, okay, that's not supposed to be there. And I was like, okay, well, what is it? And he says to me, oh, well, I can't tell you. We're having someone come down from oncology. Now, you would think that would evoke fear in somebody. I didn't know what oncology meant. So to me, it didn't mean anything. I was was like, okay. (laughs) I didn't even know what doctor I was speaking to when we got a prognosis. I I thought he was a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. I had no idea he was an oncologist, hematologist, doctor. Thank you for being so open because um, this this is hard. This is hard to talk about. And, you know, Tara, you've been so um, inspiring to me mm-hmm. where within two weeks of Ollie's diagnosis, somehow a mom in a Facebook group posted about your book. I said, who is this woman? And I read your book in about a week. And then I, and then we got you know, inundated with stuff. And, um, and then I picked it up again. I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> and I have the book in front of me, Tara. It's all earmarked. And oh my gosh. And you make me cry. Underlined <laughs> and highlighted. And I cannot thank you enough. So I just want to kind of move the conversation a little bit. If you could just tell um, our audience a little bit about making cancer fun, because there are so many good resources that you have in there through your experience. Um, and it, again, it was just, it was nice to have in my toolkit, even though Ollie is only two and a half and he's, you know, he's not three, which is a big developmental difference, um, between th- three mm-hmm. and a half and a two year old, but I want to have it in my toolkit because the days are coming yeah. and, uh, you know, as funny as it sounds, making cancer fun, you have to, you have to laugh, you have to dance. So, I'm going to stop talking because I really want you to talk about how amazing this book is because people need to know they need to have an option 
to get this book because it it really has changed my perspective because I've been the most positive person that I know. But as soon as Ollie got diagnosed, there was a hole in my heart that I never even knew could be filled. So, so your book was one little step in healing my heart. Oh my so gosh. I'm going to turn, I'm going to turn the mic over to oh, you. I don't even get to talk after that because that just makes me like in tears. I, oh my gosh. Um, and I will tell you, it makes it worth every day that I sat there rewriting that and crying <laughs> because it was not yeah. a difficult, I mean, it was a difficult experience. So um, when my daughter was diagnosed, they basically told me she had a very low survival rate. Um, and I just kind of was like, okay, well, I don't know, you know, how long I'm going to have with this child, but I do know that I'm not going to sit around and be miserable. If I only have a short period of time left with her, I'm going to make this as fun as possible. And I have a little bit of a different background. I actually went to college for theater and I did improv in New York at a school. And then I, as you had shared, I uh, had built a business, uh, really built my career in Mary Kay cosmetics, which is, you know, if you do any kind of uh, direct sales or in that kind of world, there's a lot of personal development, a lot of personal growth where you're coaching people and you're mentoring people and you have to learn about how the mind works and goal setting and you know, bounce back ability and all of that. So I, I had a, which can become very addictive it is. in a good way, <laughs> but I had this kind of unique background. So that's what I brought to the table. And so I just said, okay, we're going to use fun as a coping tool. And so we're going to have as much fun as possible. And it was, I guess it was interesting because looking back quite openly, I assumed everybody did what we did. You know, so for example, you know, when we checked into the hospital, we didn't check out for 78 days straight. Like I checked in through an emergency room and did not go home for 78 days. And that was through Thanksgiving, through Christmas, through New Year's. So everything was a party. Every milestone was a party. Everything was silly. Everything was light. Um, it, you know, we would have, we named her, her, bro, her Broviac, we called them champions and they gave her champion chemo and the little pulse socks that they would put on her toe to monitor her. Um, I guess that's like your oxygen. They, we would call it the teasing toe and the toes would tease each other over who would get to wear the light. And we just made everything super, mm -hmm. super fun. And so people kept saying, you know, people kept noticing and I kept saying, what's different about what we're doing? Everybody must do this. This is kids. This is normal to me. Kids, you know, they don't know any different. And I, I remember mm -hmm. thinking, hey, if, uh, if all I do is sit around and cry all day and my daughter has no concept of time and she goes from her normal life to now I sit in a hospital room and, and cry with my mom all the time, like I'd want to give up too, right? Like that wouldn't be mm -hmm. really inspiring me to fight. <laughs> I'd be like, everybody's miserable now, you know? Mm -hmm. So it didn't make sense in my brain to not be that way. But I also didn't realize that everybody else didn't do that. And but Tara, I have a yeah. question though. Did you did you have that moment, that down moment initially? So I will tell you there were I, I really didn't initially. And here's why. Um I had read, and I've never been able to find it. This was before Emily had cancer. I had read an interesting study where they had doctors predict whether or not somebody would live or die through a cancer diagnosis. And doctors were able to predict with a fairly large accuracy rate of whether that person would live or die simply based on how they responded when they received their diagnosis. And I remember that really stuck out in my mind. And so at that point, mm. you know, I wasn't in the cancer world, but I remember when they told me she had cancer that um, I remembered that and said, so I said, okay, so how, 
how she can't choose how to respond, but I can, I'm going to choose to respond this way. They also told me that Mm -hmm. based on her x-rays, her one lung had collapsed and the other lung was collapsing. So they literally, you know, pushed her into a room, um, ripped off her clothes, stuck a chest tube in her and tried to drain the fluid out. I mean, this was civil war type server like like people oh. running like let's try to save this child's life because she's like dying in and the why why room. was it why was it collapsing because it had got, the tumor had um, metastasized and it had broken through okay. and so the lungs were filling with fluid they call it chylosuffusion and okay there were I, there were a couple liters i want to say there were like three or four liters of fluid in her lungs and they could only drain a certain amount because if they drained all of it it would have killed her so i mean this was like a crazy okay. Then they, you know, with this chest tube and everything. And so I had somebody say to me, you know, we're not even sure how she was still breathing by the time you got her to the emergency room. And I've always had a very strong faith. And I just took that as a, well, I guess if you're saying to me that she shouldn't be breathing and she is, then God doesn't plan on her dying. And if he doesn't plan on her dying, Mm -hmm. then we are going to keep her alive. And then as they were going through her um, survival rate, I remember them telling me, you know, we, we are really sorry to tell you that it's neuroblastoma. It has one of the lower survival rates. It's not like leukemia. And I remember thinking like, so I should have been, you know, the good news would have been she had leukemia. Like whoever thinks my kid has leukemia, let me celebrate. Like that just seems so odd to me. Right. Right. And so I remember them saying, Jackie, you know, she's one of the lower rates, one of the lower rates. So in my mind, I'm thinking they're going to tell me she's got a 5% you know, she's got a 10% survival rate. And I said to them, so, well, what's her percentage? And they said 40%. And I clearly misheard them because they must've meant 4%, right? Because that's what they had me Mm. so scared that it was this low rate. So I said, wait, did you mean four or four zero? And they said Mm -hmm. 40. And I said, well, the divorce statistics in our country are 50%. And 40 is pretty close Mm -hmm. to 50 and people get married every day with those statistics. (laughs) So I feel like 50 is a really, really good percentage. So in my mind, I think because I was expecting the number to be like four or 5% when they said 40%, that was like a victory to me. And I do remember them looking at me like I had completely lost my mind. (laughs) that Mm -hmm. I was Well, because in the moment when you receive that news and this, you know, I, I went through this definitely and my husband did too you are no longer logically thinking because your brain goes into hyperdrive and you, you know, from my experience, I was not processing. I I was in complete, just the throes of grief and I just could not process what was happening because my mind was just over, overthinking everything. And so it's very hard. And we have wonderful staff that have said to us multiple times, this is normal. Mm. We will repeat this over and over again to you. This is part of the process. We don't, you know, we don't mind repeating this information to you. ask us the questions again. Yeah. Um, because it really sends your brain into just the depths of the universe. I, I physically felt like my heart had been ripped out of my chest yeah. and thrown to the depths of the universe and then shot back in my heart. And that's, that was a personal experience that I had and every parent, you know, handles the news differently. But Tara, you know, from what you said, 40%, I I would have thought the same thing that you would have been expecting to hear. Oh, 4%, but it was four zero, which again, that's, that's really good. You know? And I think one of the things I I tell parents now is 
don't ask what percentage because it's irrelevant. I never did. You know, I never did. My husband did because I just did not want to know. I think that's smart because, because I see on these Facebook groups, people posting like, you know, what, what was your percentage or what is the percentage? And I I don't think it's a relevant question because it doesn't matter if you're, if they say your kid has a 1%, there's still somebody's kid who's going to be that 1%. So why not yours? And that was what I, that became like my mantra, like someone's kid is going to live. Why not mine? You know, why not me? Mm -hmm. Someone's going to have that survivor. There's going to be a survivor who walks around. Who's the statistic? You know, there's always going to be that kid that does better than the doctors think. There's always going to be that kid that they go, well, we didn't expect that. Right. So why not you? And I just took that as my, okay, then why not me? And so, and because if they had, imagine the other way, imagine if they say, oh, you know, we've caught this so early on, they have a 95% survival rate. Well, for the 5% mm-hmm. that don't survive, they don't feel too great, right? When you go, well, they mm-hmm. had a 95%, how come I'm the five that didn't? So I just think that's a wasted energy kind of question. Um, right. And so that kind of launched you into writing the book, Making Kids So fun. actually not really. I started um, writing a gratitude journal because I was having all of these horrible things happen at once. So she gets diagnosed. My insurance dropped me 24 hours later. Um, I had just signed on to be a spokesperson for a new company that was supposed to help me kind of get out of my financial chaos from my divorce. And the owner dropped dead suddenly. And they call me while I'm in the hospital to tell me that contract is now over. And I mean, it was just, I was like, are you kidding me? One it was, thing after it was the next. where I was almost yeah. laughing about it because I'm like, this is getting ridiculous. Um, and I knew from my years in personal development that what we focus on gets bigger. So I understood how the brain worked enough to go, okay, I have to really get my, my focus to change quickly because all I'm seeing is everything that's not working and that's falling apart and that's terrible. And so I sat down um, on a borrowed laptop in my daughter's you know, hospital room and started writing a gratitude journal every night. And I would just force my brain to find things to be grateful for because I wanted, again, you know, what I focused on, I wanted that to get bigger. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it was things like, I'm glad somebody brought me a pair of clean socks to the hospital because my feet smell. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was a really great scan came back and that was good news. Sometimes it was, I remember one time just being like, I'm really grateful for whoever invented coffee. Like oh, I'm so grateful for that. Yes. <laughs> so it was yes. every little thing mm-hmm. I could find and just would list and list. And I started posting it on Facebook and this is, you know, years ago before, like you didn't even have pictures on Facebook. It was when people put, mm-hmm. would put, you know, I am eating an apple. Like mm-hmm. that was all that was on Facebook. So it was just accountability for myself. I said, I'm going to do this every night. I'm going to post it on Facebook to be accountable that I'm doing this every night. And it was crazy, Jackie. People started following and commenting. And then that encouraged me to continue. And then I started mm-hmm. kind of writing more about how I was feeling and blogging. And, um, and so I had a bunch of that stuff, which if you see the book, that's kind of those like handwritten looking style pages. That's what I was writing during that time. And so then, this book is a mix between um, your diary entries and then you've broken up the different chapters into um, different sections about the treatment. And you said with your daughter, she had um, a sticky tumor. So you had a tumor stomping party and it just kind of breaks down for parents, you know, different tactical things like you're talking about right now, gratitude, that 
that is one thing, Tara, that I hold near and dear to my to my heart, and that's something that I strive for um, every day. Although it doesn't happen, <laughs> but, yeah, but you know, <laughs> it's definitely something that grounds me mm-hmm. because um, just having you know the the tribe that we have right now. Every night when I think about that, and the and the doctors that we have, it it really does fill my heart and. You know, prepping to the, for this interview, I was looking back at what I've underlined, and you and I both, you know, have gratitude towards living in the United States, yeah. being being close to treatment, because um, that was one of the things that I told my husband the night after Ollie was diagnosed. Thank God we don't have bombs dropping over oh our heads, yeah. and we're in a hospital that has safe and clean areas that he can be treated because I can, I can remember wholeheartedly right now, just picturing looking up at those night nurses and they're like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm so thankful that we are here in the United States. And they would just look at me like, okay, she's crazy. But like, I really meant it because as my world was crashing around me, I kept thinking, wow, we're so, we're so lucky to be here. And, you know, even if you're in the throes of it, if you're there one more day, you're still fighting one more day. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, there are parents who would love to be sitting in the hospital still fighting, you know. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, we just take for granted, I think, a lot of stuff, particularly if we're in the United States, right? We take for granted so much. So it it was a process. I mean, it wasn't something that I set out to do. I had zero intention of writing a book. I really just wanted to get through cancer, get my daughter into a healthy Mm -hmm. place and then go back to my regular life. Um, and it was really more, (laughs) you know, I believe when God wants you to do something, he will just hunt you down until you do it. And that's how I started to feel. I felt like people, random people who didn't even really know me would talk to me for a little bit and then be like, did you ever consider writing a book? I'd be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so it was after mm-hmm. years of people saying that, that I finally wrote, sat down and was like, all right, I'm just going to write this book, you know, and that'll be over and, and that'll be the end of it. And it's been such a crazy process and it was difficult, like going back and, and reliving that. I remember one day sitting in my, I was at my parents' house, I think it was maybe Christmas time and I was editing, I was going through the final edits from the editor and I was in the, I was in a room by myself with the laptop, you know, on my lap and just tears streaming down my face as I'm rereading this. And my brother comes in and he goes, do you cry every time you work on this? <laughs> mm. But it was so emotional reliving how, you know, how yeah. you feel. And so when I got the final proof, like the actual printed proof, I read through the whole thing out loud, you know, just checking for any last typos or anything. And when I closed it, I said, okay, that's the last time I will ever read that book. You know, um, and it's, I'm so grateful that it blesses other people because it's, mm-hmm. I wrote the book with the idea that this is the book I wish I had. This is the book that when I was first, when she was first diagnosed and I was grasping, I remember going to the library at the hospital and there was nothing. I remember, you know, asking like, I'm a great student. I was a great student in college. What's the first thing you do when you don't know how to do something, right? You try to find a book that shows you how to do it. And there was nothing Mm -hmm. like what I was looking for. And so I I really wrote it with the idea that if this is what I want. And it was really my editor's idea to come up with the workbook pages. And when she said that, I said to her, I don't know how to do that. And she said, I think it'll have more value if you create workbook pages. And I remember being very, that seemed so daunting to me. 
And I was like, I don't know how to do that. Uh, and now I'm so glad she suggested that because I think it really helps bridge the gap between reading somebody else's story and actually feeling empowered to create a different experience for your child. And I'm looking through it, you know, everything that I've underlined and um, just as an example um, to the audience that's listening that doesn't have the book yet, um, Tara highlights, you know, the fun factor. What are the main benchmarks your child needs to complete in the next year for treatment? And then she goes on to say, you know, who are some people your child wants to see? So it's really forward thinking. It's planning with your child, whether they're, you know, of elementary age, middle school. This also applies to high schoolers. Um, and, you know, part of it too, I think, this, you know, Tara, you say it's a parent's guide, but it can almost be for really anyone going through treatment because let's face it, we're all children at heart and the more laughter, the better. And, um, there are some people, you know, that are definitely handling it differently from Tara and I right now, but if you're not laughing, then, you know, you're not filling your heart up and and that's exactly what you know, you really need when you're going through something that's so traumatic and so heavy. And um, it really can be a resource to anyone is the point I'm getting at. They hear making cancer fun and they kind of do that second take, like, what did you just say? Um, Mm -hmm. And I, and I appreciate that everybody goes through their own experience. There's no right. There's no wrong. Like when you talked about how you felt your heart was shot out, um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I felt for me, I felt like I was levitating out of my body for two weeks. You know, I think yep. we all go through shock and grief in different ways. Mm-hmm. I went into, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and this is just my personality. I went into instant, like, okay, what can I do? How can I handle this situation? How can I, how can I control this situation? And so fun for me was a way to control what felt very uncontrollable. Somebody else might have a different way. And if, if you're, crying and you're, you're sad. I think that's totally fine. It's not to say like, okay, you can't have those breakdowns in those moments. There's a difference between that being a moment and having that grief and allowing your body to process that and feel that and staying there. And I think that's the difference. Um, when I ended up doing the, the TEDx talk and, uh, had to really start to research the effects of, you know, laughter in medicine and fear and what it does to the body it was things that I kind of knew in my gut, but I didn't have any research to back that up. And so researching to prepare for that, that uh, talk was really fascinating because there's so much research about what happens to the body when you stay in a state of chronic fear. And clearly as a parent, if your child's going through cancer, it's very difficult to not be in a state of chronic fear, Right. Right. Cause you're in that fight or Absolutely. flight mode where your, your adrenaline is pumping and in long-term adrenaline that is released in your body will continue to keep you in that fight or flight. And it will just propel on, it, it can, it can just, um, propel on for many, many oh, yeah. years. And if you're not able to release it as the way that you're talking about through laughter and fun and play, it stays in your body. There's actually a study that just came out. I want to say momcology, I think was part of it, um, about the long-term health effects that parents go through after their child has gone through cancer. And 
you know, when we hold feelings like anger and resentment and fear and, you know, worry, and we're releasing all this cortisol into our body and throwing off our hormones, we can really disrupt our nervous system. We can um, disrupt our endocrine system, a lot of really crazy things. And when we laugh, there is, it releases different hormones. It releases like these yummy dopamines into our body that reduces our stress level. It um, puts oxygen, it flows the oxygen through your body. It actually builds your immune system when you're laughing. And there's all those things like laughing increases your pain tolerance. So if a child is going through scary, painful procedures and they're laughing, it's relaxing their muscles. It's increasing their pain. It's laughing can be a distraction. So there's actual science that shows that laughing has really significant health benefits. It's not just an emotional feels good. We should laugh more. It's really healthy to have our children laugh. And when I open my talk, I talk about that children laugh on average 150 times a day. So the average child going through cancer went from a world where they were used to laughing 150 times a day. I mean, just think about that, right? Within 24 hours, that's like, they're laughing right. all day long. And now all of a sudden we take them and we put them in this environment in this hospital where no one laughs anymore. Like even before treatment started, we have just turned their entire world upside down. Now adults only laugh 12 times a day. So for us, that's a normal world. For children, this is completely an abnormal environment that goes against who they biologically are meant to be. And laughing, it's, it's very primitive and it's our way our body handles stress. It's kind of like if you've ever been in that really uncomfortable situation where all of a sudden somebody laughed and then everybody it else breaks starts the ice. laughing and they're mm -hmm. kind of like, I shouldn't be laughing right now. This is so politically incorrect, but I can't stop laughing. It's mm -hmm. your body is actually trying to you know, release the stress and build up these, you know, good, um, hormones. And so the laughing is a way to do that. And so oh, I've had people say to me, some medical professionals had said to me, well, you know, when people go through cancer, they, they feel like they shouldn't laugh. They feel bad laughing. They feel guilty laughing. Like, how can I be laughing and giggling and having fun when my kid is going through cancer? And so if anything, I just hope that it gives people permission to say, it's okay to laugh. It's actually good for you and it's good for your kid. And it's not that you're taking away from how serious the situation is. And it's not that you're not recognizing, you know, the, the grief and the, the hardship and all of the horrible parts, but you're saying, okay, I'm not, you know, I can't control what's happening. Um, medically, right? Like I can't control if my kid's going to respond positively or negatively to their treatment, but I can control how we face this. Like I can choose and how we react mm -hmm. to the situation. I can choose how we're going to experience mm -hmm. this together as a family. And I'm not going to let cancer, you know, take that, that those happy memories for me. And I'm going to, you know, it, this is my thought is that if I only had a few memories, a few months of memories left with my daughter yeah, there were going to be some horrible ones, but I was going to make as many good ones in that process as I could. And I had no idea at the time in doing that, that I was doing all of these really great physical benefits for her, you know? Um, right. So, and yeah. also Tara, you know, I'm looking through the book right now and, um, you had a tumor stomping party. So basically giving the tumor a mm -hmm. name and, and, and owning it and having Emily, who was three and a half, physically stomp out the tumor. So mentally she was understanding even at three and a half, yeah. what was happening to her body? Why, you know, on, on a, um, child appropriate level, you discuss, you know, how you explained it to her and her chemo is superpowers and, and, um, giving tangible, um, items that she can understand why she's in the hospital, what's going on, how she's, 
the miracle kid, as you have called her. And I've called, I call Ollie that as well. I love it. My angel baby, because um, these kids go through so much that um, others have not even gone through in a lifetime. And so giving kids, especially kids, you know, the play therapy, we do so much play therapy at home. And, and you were giving that to her throughout the 70 days in the hospital. Yeah, we've, I mean, we've used that all the way through. I mean, um, when she would go back for the immunotherapy, it would be really hard because she would get a taste of being at home. So this was like the last five months of treatment. And then we'd have to go in for a week. And it was really, really painful treatment. And she would not want to go. So we made everything a theme and a party. And she could come up with her theme. And we did that for a long time, even when she was doing her follow-up treatment. I think until she got probably to fifth grade and then, you know, wasn't as cool anymore, but she would get to come Mm. up with her theme. And then we'd have to come up with a costume for her theme and we'd get party famers. And so it was something fun to go to the hospital versus, you know, most kids don't want to go to the hospital. Right. So we'd be like, what are you going to wear? And what are you going to bring? And how can we make this fun? Um, I also think it's very important. And this was important for me that she always understood that the cancer was not part of her. And it's interesting. I'm working on a a series now where I'm interviewing parents who have long-term survivors. And these are parents who don't know each other. They haven't met. They weren't at the same hospital. They're from all over the country. And it's been really fascinating to me because they share very similar ways that they dealt with their cancer. And obviously I'm not interviewing people who, who don't have survivors. So I can't say that those people didn't do this as well. Right. Um, But Mm -hmm. what's interesting is they share similar things. So almost all of them did some kind of gratitude journal or some kind of gratitude practice, all of them were very conscious of the energy in their hospital room. They played uplifting music, they decorated it, they brought things from home to make it feel more homey. They were very aware of creating kind of a a, a light atmosphere. They also were very conscious of how they spoke about their child's cancer, that it was never that the, the cancer wasn't part of their child, that the cancer was separate And that their child was, you know, it was the child versus the cancer. So Emily named her tumor stupid tumor, which, you know, she was three. So stupid was a bad word. And it was all about her versus stupid tumor. And and that became very powerful, particularly when she didn't want to do things. Because I would say to her, you know, oh, Em, I hear him. I hear stupid tumor. He is laughing. He's saying you can't do it. You're not strong enough. He's going, ha, 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 ha. I got you. And she would narrow her eyes and she'd be like, and it was like this vendetta against her and stupid tumor. And, um, and then when she would do stuff like take medicine or things that she didn't want to have to do, then I would say, oh my gosh, do you hear him? He's saying, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. Emily, you're kicking his butt, you know? And she loved that. I mean, kids naturally liked that. So it was very much that she was the good guy and tumor was the bad guy, (laughs) you know, and that. She right. wasn't part of it. And the that cancer. made sense to her. Tara, you know, you've inspired me too that whenever we have to give, you know, Ollie medicine at home, um, kind of making it a game. So he, you know, he's two and a half. So he gets to choose who gets the medicine first. And then mommy gets it. Then daddy gets it. Then Woody from Toy Aww. Story gets it. And in making that a game, and then it's Ollie's turn, and then somebody else. So that way he has a sense of control. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it has worked every single time. 
and we just make it a game and it's not even like it's a big deal. I think that's awesome. And it's interesting the way kids view cancer and the way we view cancer is so different. And I notice this even more and more as my daughter's gotten older, because now I can talk to her about, you know, what did you remember and, and stuff like that. And things that we think are such a big deal and they don't or vice versa, you know, and when we hear cancer, it's this horrific, heavy, scary mm-hmm. word. But for my daughter, cancer really doesn't have any weight at all. You know, it, it's the same as if you said strep throat. Like she, and she, now that she's older, she understands that not everybody else feels that way. So like sometimes when a, a, somebody's annoying her, she'll kind of like throw the cancer card out there to, to shock them. And I, I say to her now, I'm like, mm-hmm. eh, you, you can't shock people with the cancer card, but she thinks it's funny because to her cancer really has no heavy weight. Right. Um, and so I think we need to remember that because it, we don't want to transfer our fear onto them. And I think now for her, you know, as you start to have more of a survivor and it'll be interesting with Ollie because he's so little that, you know, he, I was talking to a mom who had this. She talks about how, you know, her son is like, you know, you're the survivor mom more than I am because the mom was more affected by the cancer than the child was, you know, he's not going to maybe necessarily remember all of that. Yeah. We'll remember. And that's the blessing (laughs) that's, you know, in the nightmare that this is the tiny blessing that, you know, he is so young and he will be done with treatment when he's five, five and a half. Um, obviously he'll be checked until he's like, you know, 50 years old, but, um, just having all these tools and saying, you know, this is what you went through. And he may turn to me and say, you know, mommy, I, I I don't really want to hear about this stuff. I I'm, I'm, I'm healthy now, mom, you know, I want to live my life. Or he may say, you know what? Yeah, let's talk about it. And, and, um, I had posted today on the Instagram, um, some of his, all of his bravery beads and using that that. as a tool to to open up a conversation because I have another mom whose little one is in second grade now and he brought them in Uh for show and tell. So again, Tara, you definitely helped me through one of the darkest times and you know, just we, I can't even begin to tell you how many things having the remission party and the 150 day treatment party. We decorated our kitchen and trucks and bulldozers and just, it was, it was absolutely wonderful. And uh, my, my, on our Instagram and like tag us. I'd love to. Oh, I would be happy to. Awesome. I would be. And I, Tara, I apologize. Oh. I still owe you a review for the book. <laughs> no, but share your photos because I think that's inspiring for other people to see that and to get ideas. And I mean, it's, you know, he he's going to remember all of that. It, it, it's interesting. My daughter remembers way more of that kind of stuff than mm-hmm. the really horrible, sad stuff. And kids are just so strong. And I think that's what you know, when you have that survivor and you're, this is, I think really key is that we have to look at what, even when they're in the middle of their cancer treatment, we're raising a survivor and having that mindset mindset, um, Mm -hmm. particularly like with how we treat them and what we expect. And Mm -hmm. that concept, you know, we always talk about the future. We would talk about her driving. We would talk about her prom. Even now, I talk to her about, you know, her being married and having kids. And when I'm really old and she's going to have to change my diapers because she's my only child. And I'm like, this is going to be payback for all those diapers I changed in the hospital. (laughs) But I want her to picture herself old 
And I want to picture herself, mm. you know, where she has children and a full yes, life. And I want to picture her life. burying me, not the other way around, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm constantly talking about, you know, when I'm really old, Emily, and you have to take care of me, you know, um, I want and, be... and just instilling that long-term yes. mindset is something that, you know, in the beginning, it's very hard to even think about the next hour, but when, you know, audience members are listening, when you feel it's appropriate or when you feel like you can start to like just inch out of that dark cave, you know, this is part of the self-care. This is part of healing your heart because staying in this dark, dark hole, like Tara had mentioned, it's going to eat you alive. So as you can kind of like sneak your way out of it, um, and Tara, I just want to you know, kind of move over a little bit and talk about self care yeah. for a little bit, because again, I have to just sing your praises because you offered a in-home spa night with your Mary Kay business. And I was jumping at that. that <laughs> night could not come fast enough for me. And honestly, I did like a happy dance in the kitchen when I got the um, samples of the makeup. <laughs> I was looking, he's like, what, what, what's going on? I'm like, I got makeup in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) And then just to be able to hop on like a Facebook live and, and have someone teach me how to put some makeup on when I was a wreck was just what exactly what my heart needed to stand in our bathroom, put on some makeup at nine 30 at night. And then walk out in the living room and show my husband. Yeah, like I'm still a real person. I'm still, I don't just live exactly. in the hospital. Yeah. Exactly. And so, Tara, if you could just talk a little bit. I know we're kind of running yeah. short on time. But just talk a little bit about maybe, you know, to, to those parents that are in the hospital, like you were living in the hospital for months on end. Yeah. What are some like three top self-care tips that maybe, you know, worked really well for you that you might want to share with the audience? So I think that what number one is that you, we, I think this is general with moms, but certainly when we have medically ill children, we feel so incredibly guilty doing anything for ourselves. And mm-hmm. I really struggled with this even after her treatment. You know, we moved back. I moved back to New Jersey. I was a single mom. I had no money. So the idea that I would go out and do something fun and social like, first of all, I felt guilty spending money that I didn't have, right? I felt guilty leaving her. And I, I was, I literally felt like my soul was dying. I'm a very social person. And I work at home, you know, so I did, if I could be home all day and not talk to another adult. And so mm-hmm. I had to really come to a point where I was like, you know what, me taking care of me isn't selfish. And what made me change my mindset was that if my daughter was in a situation where she was married and she was taking care of kids or she was in that, would I want her not to take care of her because she was too busy taking care of everybody else? And of course not. I'd be like, Emily, you need to take care of yourself. I want you to be okay, right? Like that's what we would encourage our kids to do. We'd say, Put your ass- oxygen mask yeah, on first I mean, so that you can help others, which sounds, you know, very easy, but it's, it it's is. hard when you're in it. It's so hard. And it's hard. that guilt. And so I think, you know, we have to kind of remember, like, if we would tell our kids that they shouldn't feel guilty for taking care of themselves, if they were the, if they were the grown up, right, then we need to be okay doing that. So you, nothing, no, there's no self-care if we don't release the guilt because you can go, you know, take a bath, you can go light a candle, you can go out with your girlfriends, but if you're feeling guilty about it, then it's not self-care, right? 
So you've got to release the guilt first and say, you know what, I, if in order for me to show up as my best for my child and for the, if that child has siblings, if you have a spouse, if you have other people who are depending on you in order for you to show up as your best, then you need to know what is going to refill you up. It's like having a pitcher of water. If All you do is pour it out. You end up with an empty pitcher. You need to figure out what is going to refill your pitcher so that you can continue to those other people. So everybody's what's going to refill you is going to be different for everybody. For me, I, it sounds funny. I loved to go out dancing in the clubs in Denver. So the nights that at that point, my um, ex-husband had, uh, he would visit her in the hospital overnight. And since I had a restraining order, I could not be there at the same time. So it actually gave me the, the freedom that I had a few nights a month that I could go out with my friends and I would go downtown to the clubs and literally dance all night until like two in the morning. That was my stress release. And, and that's what you had to it do. Was like that, and did you enjoy oh, I it? it? I would just get there and I had a couple of girlfriends who liked to dance too. And, you know, it wasn't really a big drinker, but I just loved, it was like that. I could just shut everything off, get on a dance floor, mm-hmm. listen to some really loud music and just dance my, you know, dance my, my fear out, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. And just to feel like a normal person, right? And so it could be like if you have a hobby that you love to do, then you do that. If you, you you know, exercise, then I think we feel guilty. Like I shouldn't leave to go to the gym for an hour. But if you're somebody who's always done that or you've always been a runner, like it's so important that maybe you can't go every day, but you go as much as you can. Um, You know, and it – Because exercise, for me, I just completed a half marathon and that training was therapy for me. It was absolute therapy. And even today in my gratitude journal, Mm. I wrote, I completed a 30 day workout program. So now I'm launching myself into fitness again, because if I don't have that adrenaline pumping that I'm so used to, then my body's going to respond in a negative way. So total self-care can be physical. It can be mental. Like you said, doing a hobby um, is is definitely a great idea. Getting back into the so-called normal life before diagnosis is tough, but I think the way that you've already set up routines in your life prior to diagnosis is almost a safeguard. And it's something to return back to when your world has crashed. And I think it's important to know if you're an introvert or an extrovert. You know, we tend to think that an extrovert is just somebody who's really outgoing, and that's not really true. An introvert, all that, what it really means is how do you refuel? So you can be a very social person who's very outgoing and has lots of friends, but you're actually an introvert because you need that downtime and being alone is what kind of recharges your battery versus an extrovert gets their energy from being around people. So if you think of yourself as a battery and you needed to kind of plug yourself back in to get recharged, what recharges you? Is it when you're alone and having some quiet time and being by yourself or is it being in a group? And that'll kind of give you a better feel if you're an introvert or extrovert because for me, because I am an extrovert and I get my energy from being around other people, it was really important to prioritize social time that I was getting out, meeting with friends, even now. I mean, it's something that I have to really work to make sure that, because I'm around people all the time in my, in my business, but that's a different kind of, of recharge. It's being with those really good people who are your friends, who you can just be yourself with, you know, um, and connect. And 
I know that I have to actually like schedule that in my calendar because that's my recharge. Now, my daughter is an introvert. She loves to be with her friends. She loves to, you know, go out and, and as a cheerleader and all of that, but her, where she recharges and I can tell just, you know, as you get to know your kids, it's, she needs that downtime. She needs that time alone in her room, you know, kind of by herself. That's where she recharges. And so it might be that, you know, you're in the hospital and you're surrounded by all of these people. And if you're an introvert, maybe that means that like you need to go hide in a sleep room for a couple of hours and just be Mm -hmm. by yourself, (laughs) you know, and that's your self care Mm -hmm. is just to get away from people, you know, because that can be really draining if you're an introvert and you're constantly surrounded by nurses and doctors and everybody else in the hospital. So all the extra noise that that's such a good point too. And I think, you know, Tara, just you touching on that is just so um, instrumental because like I said, when you're going through the diagnosis, you're not thinking logically and everything is just, you're hypersensitive to everything. So now as we, you know, are growing our all mama care community um, and people are kind of going, you know, getting through frontline and and getting through the first couple months of diagnosis, really, even right now, I'm reflecting on what type of person I am. Mm. So thank you. Cause those are just, that's just gold right there. Thank you. And everybody's journey is different. Like, I think one of the things that's Mm -hmm. great about this podcast is that you're giving people to hear such different perspective from so many different people, because there's really no right way. There's no my way or your way or, you know, stuff that maybe, you know, resonates with you. Great. And the stuff that doesn't, it doesn't, you know, and I do Mm -hmm. think at the end of the day, you know, your kid best you know, you know, you're the only person who knows your kid the best, right? And as moms, even more so, like that child was in your belly with you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, your child best, you know, what is going to work for them, what's not going to work for them, what's going to be scary for them, and kind of trusting your gut, which I think when you're thrown in that cancer world, it's so you're so like, and I was already so off my, you know, balance to begin with, because of what was going on before mm-hmm. that, that I just didn't trust my gut a lot. And trusting that you kind of, you do know, you know more than you know. And if you're not sure, like sit quietly, a lot of times we're making decisions or medical decisions and, you know, our mind is racing. And if you just kind of can sit quietly and say like, okay, if I knew, what would I know? You know, if I did know, what would I know? What am I, you know, not being aware of that I do know? Um, And that you make the best decisions that you can at the time. And one thing I I did not do, at least I did this with my divorce, but I did not do this with her cancer is I never went back and like, second guessed, should I have done this differently? Or should I have done that differently? Because I felt like I made the best decisions I could at the time that I had with the information I had at that time. And that was all exactly, I could do. Exactly, Tara. And, so- and to that point too, I'm just going to briefly um, just paraphrase one thing that you wrote um, in one of the chapters. You had talked about um, just being advocate for yourself and need to advocate for your child you know all the medicines and you know you need to know what you're talking about. You need to do your research. You can't just blindly trust whatever the doctors tell you because you have to remember that you're just human too. Yeah. So, and that's a part I underlined because like you said, you need to go with your gut, but you also need to ask questions and not apologize for that. Yeah. You are making, you know, a lot of times you might have to make a decision and you have, you know, you need to ask questions. I think it's, there's so there's like that's bringing that up is a really great um a really great point because we want to do our research you want to be careful where you're getting your research from what's difficult with childhood cancer is that there's no two kids who are alike 
And there's no two cancers that are going to be, you know, the same kind of thing as far as, yeah, even if they have the same diagnosis, right? Everybody's kid's body is going to respond differently. If that wasn't the case, then we would know that, okay, if you have this diagnosis and we give you these chemos, you will live. Right. Right. And we don't know that like everybody's body is different when it comes to cancer. And so you want to make sure that your research is being done in like appropriate places because there's so much misleading stuff. I mean, I think it's important to remember when we're, I learned this later on. I wish I had known this a little bit earlier on um, how to talk with your medical staff, because sometimes, particularly when we're in that state, um, and depending on the doctor, you know, some people have really great bedside manner and some don't. <laughs> and asking questions without putting people on a defense is mm -hmm. a, as a skill. I didn't have that skill in the beginning. I have worked to develop that. And so I've learned things like saying, you know, well, you know, would it be reasonable for us to try this? For some reason, saying that word, would it be reasonable? Um, kind of diffuses any kind of confrontation. And mm -hmm. I find that people are very receptive using that language um, or, you know, okay, so that's one option. Are there any other options that we have? You know, maybe there are two or three other options and you, and you want to know what those are. Doctors, their language, particularly when you're brand new, we don't even know half the words they're using. Right. 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 And so I would find where I'd say, okay, well, I, I don't understand. Can you explain that again? And they would kind of explain it the same way. Mm -hmm. And so I still didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. So starting to say, okay, is there a different way that you can explain that? Because I'm not understanding. Exactly. Those are those two tips that you just gave everybody. Those are exactly what I did as well, because like you said, the medical jargon was overwhelming. I felt like I yeah. was in med school and, and to that point, Tara, I said multiple times, I understand this, but can you explain this again? Yeah. And being really clear and specific and, and, you know, kind of, um, being a part of their team. You're not just the parent. You, you are a part of the medical team now. Yeah. And having a, a medical team that you trust, I think is super, super important. And I think it's okay if that doesn't feel like sometimes it's just a personality clash or whatever to say, Hey, is there a different nurse that we could put on staff or at least request that, right? Because there's nothing worse than you're already upset, nervous, heightened, feeling anxious. And now you have somebody treating your child that you don't trust or that you don't feel comfortable with. Like that's just, everybody's going to feel uncomfortable. So, um, being able to talk and, and a good person to go to if you're having that is like your child life specialist or your social worker and having that conversation with them about, you know, is there somebody else or is there a different nurse or is there a different specialist or whatnot that might be a better match for your family. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tara, for talking about all of that, because I just interviewed our child life specialist, Nicole, and we talked about all the things that she's been helping us with through um, Ollie's treatment. And um, she has been instrumental in, you know, part of the team and just making sure, you know, that we're all comfortable with what's happening, because it is it's very emotional. Every time that you go to the hospital, every time you go to the clinic, Yes, it's become a routine, but it's still very emotional yeah. and it can still be very triggering. Oh, absolutely. So like you said, being able to trust your team and having full trust in that is definitely um, the cornerstone to being able to think forward as far as, okay, what's the next thing we need to do? And then checking them off. Yeah. Um, so Tara, I, I wish I, we could talk. All I know night I'm long, looking at the but... clock just now and I went, oh my gosh, I you're going to have to like slice <laughs> and cut this so much. 
I know. I just want to be respectful of your time. And I just want to thank you again so much because you really have been, well, you are such a wonderful mentor to me. And mm. I really appreciate it. Well, and now you're becoming a mentor to other people oh. with your podcast. So I love it. <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate you reading this book. And I know that you have a couple other projects that you're working on. And I'm super excited to learn about those. Um, and can you just tell our listeners, how would they get in touch with you? How would they get the Making Cancer Fun book? Yeah, so it is on Amazon, but I would encourage you to go to our website instead because if you're a cancer parent, it's much cheaper through the website. Um, so that's a little a little tip. Um, if okay. you just go to makingcancerfun.com, I also subscribe to our newsletter. I really want um, our brand to be a place that's a resource for people. So we send out a monthly newsletter with um, tips and ideas. Uh, we've started a webinar, which I know you're going to be on a Wednesday webinar on our Facebook group that every Wednesday we bring in experts to share with our community and that it's a place, whether it's Instagram or Facebook, uh, you know, the newsletter, but that not to be naive to the child, the, the reality of childhood cancer, but in all of the stuff that's out there, having one place that you know that everything you're seeing there is going to be positive, inspiring, and giving you hope. Because that, for me, I was seeking out stories of survivors. I was seeking out people who could give me hope because everybody around me in the hospital was in the same boat as me. And mm -hmm. so particularly when you need that, like, oh, today's been a really, really bad day that you can log on our Instagram and see all positive stories, see pictures of survivors, hear their miracle stories. So we, everything is designed that it's going to be uplifting and kind of, you know, again, give hope to a family. So, and I just received the newsletter the other day and it is just wonderful. So Aww, thanks. Yeah. yeah so. And really you just put everything right on one newsletter and, um, and the webinar too. I'm super, super excited about that. And um, I just want to thank you again so much for taking the time to talk about all the awesome things that you're doing. And um, I'm so glad that Emily is doing well. And I'm so excited that, you know, she's in eighth grade I now know. and she's living the, her best life. Yeah. And I'll tell you, just to, we were just to finish up. Um, we had our local magazine did an article about her and I and you and I were talking about how kids experience cancer differently. And I mm -hmm. said to her when the magazine came out, I said, and because they, you know, to write up on the book and, the, and what, you know, the brand and everything. And I said, did you see that? Are you excited? She's like, yeah. And I was kind of shocked. <laughs> I was like, and that's like a pretty big deal. Like you're in a magazine and she's, and she literally yeah. Jackie, she goes, it's not like I did anything great. Oh, well I survived. Oh, and I was like, she is what? a spitfire. And she goes, it's not like I was in there for being like the most fashionable mom or something really cool. <laughs> like, so, oh, you know, yeah. So our perspective and their perspective is so different. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's a good thing. I think that's a really, really good thing that we will. And then studies show this, right? Parents have a higher rate of PTSD than, than the actual children. And so in some ways, I think that that's something that, while that's not great for us, that is great for our kids. The kids really are resilient and they will bounce back and they can go on to have a completely, you know, quote unquote, normal life. She's doing well in school. She hangs out with her friends, like even things, you know, yeah, she was hearing aids and that's different or there's other things that we need to be aware of. But, you know, there are children who don't have cancer who have those things, you know, mm -hmm. and so every kid is different and unique and you know, there, there is like, there can be light at the end of the tunnel and it's getting through that 
and keeping yourself mentally okay so that when you get to the end of that tunnel, you're not so mentally depleted that you can't mm-hmm. now go forward. You know, there's no perfect, I, I see parents so devastated, even ones who have survivors. And it's different if you're, you know, a parent who's, who's lost their child, that's a whole different conversation. But people yeah. who have survivors and these parents feel so broken and so like, I will never Heavy. be the same. My life is different. I will always be cover, you know, struggling with grief. And it's like, well, what was the point of surviving if that's the future that you're going to create? You know, if you went through this hell to survive, then it's time to start living and it's, it's mm-hmm. time to start thriving. It's not enough to just say we made it through, you know? And so I think what you're doing with this podcast really gives people that hope um, because they're seeing how you are coping and how you're going through this and you have an unknown still for a few years. Right. Um, but I think you're, you're, I think Ollie has such a gift in having a mom who can appreciate and understand that you are his mirror and how you, how you show up in this is how he's going to experience it. And he's very lucky oh, to have thank that. you so much. And I'm really lucky too, because my husband's right there with me and, you know, we both want, we always continue to ask how's, how's he doing emotionally? How's he doing socially being a two-year-old making sure, you know, he's around kids his age when we can be. And, uh, and just seeing the child as a whole really kind of helps keep everything in perspective. Um, even tonight, you know, just after dinner, running around, playing hide and go seek, screaming at the top of his lungs. Cause you know, daddy's jumping out being a monster and that, is the best yeah. because like you said, laughter really is the best medicine. Yeah. And he's a kid. Um, yes. He's a kid who's going through cancer, but he's a kid first. And so what I'm hearing is you're really allowing him that space to just be a kid. Mm-hmm. And the cancer is not him. Yeah. Like you said, it's you're seeing the child as a whole and really recognizing them as an individual yeah. and not just the cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Um, so Tara, thank you so much for your time. Yes, well, I, I like I said, I feel like I could talk for our done with you. done with treatment, and we're gonna plan a huge party for that. So that's the best part. <laughs> thank of Thank you. Yep. So, is the best way for people to get in touch with you by going on the Making Cancer Fun Facebook page? Um, probably the website. If they go to the website, they can okay. access all the social media from there. They can get connected to the okay. newsletter. Um, there's a contact me form if they want to email directly. Uh, so I would go to the website first to make sure you're, you know, connected and then that will kind of connect you every place else. Wonderful. And if they wanted to view your Ted talk, would they just go on to, uh, and it's also on the website. It's right on the homepage. Oh, yep. perfect. So they go to makingcancerfun.com. Uh, there are Ted, the TEDx talk is right there too. And it's uh, choosing Wonderful. fun in the chaos of cancer. Well, there you have it, my friend. You just heard directly from Tara as she shared her daughter's survivor story and how they made it through the storm. It was a true pleasure speaking with Tara and creating a space for laughter and fun when everything seems dark and heavy. Make sure you pop on over to makingcancerfun.com. Sign up for her monthly newsletter, check out her TED Talk, and order your own copy of her book, Making Cancer Fun. Make sure you hop on over to the Making Cancer Fun Facebook page or to Tara's Voice Facebook page to tune in to her Wednesday webinars. You guys, these webinars are ones that you don't want to miss. They are treasure chests filled with tangible and tactical life skill tips and tricks for mental health that can only be conveyed by someone who's been through it. Next week, I talk with Danielle 
a licensed esthetician who sheds light on the connection between trauma and stress and how our skin may react to those internal emotions. Danielle explains what exactly goes on at a hormonal level while in a state of stress. She offers suggestions that can help alleviate stress to help restore the equilibrium both inside our minds and refresh our skin.